This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So pleased that you can be with us in this beautiful day that we have here in June. And if you are a first time listener and you have questions about a passage of scripture or a challenge in your personal spiritual life or ministry that we can help you with, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, the number Rick just gave is 843-525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. We've been gone a couple Tuesdays with funerals during this hour, but uh, we're glad to be back today. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started and we'll take them one at a time. All right. Very good. Karen from Taylor's, South Carolina wants to know, uh, what would you recommend as a good study Bible for someone in their young 20s? That's a great question. Um, a couple things. It depends first on how long you've been a Christian and where you are in the, your growth spectrum. That would be an important uh, issue. But any study that will get you interacting with Scripture, though I do think that it's critical that you have a basic foundation in terms of doctrine. And I do teach a course called Basic Discipleship. Uh, that we offer here every Sunday at Community Bible Church so that when someone becomes a Christian, they have an avenue where they can grow and learn and get grounded in the basics of the Christian faith. And and typically, most of the counseling issues that you face as a pastor come out of a lack of understanding of the basics. And so uh, it is available. At least uh, 18 of the 45 weeks are now up online on video or you can listen to the audio, audio file. You can find them at searchthescriptures.org. There's a phone app that you can download, but that would be a great study. So, for instance, right now they're dealing with the Doctrine of Eternal Security. That's a five-page handout that you can print out online, and then you can listen to and take extensive notes. Uh, or, for instance, there was a handout on prayer, and that's 30 pages long. And, again, it will walk you through what God's Word says about prayer. So there are some foundational truths. In fact, our discovery class is not just for new believers. It's also for people who have maybe been a Christian a long time, but no one has ever discipled them. And so if Dr. Billy Graham was correct, you've heard me say it before, that uh, he estimated 90 to 95% of the truly genuine regenerated believers in this country as having remained to be baby Christians because they were never grounded in their faith, never taught the essentials. And so we've had people go through the discovery class where after six or seven months, they'll tell me, you know, I've grown more in the last seven months than I had in the prior 20 years when I got saved 20 years ago. That's not an uncommon response. Uh, We also have the class designed for someone who wants to know how to disciple someone else. So you're in your 20s. 
And so you want to, one, know how to lead someone to Christ. And we have a course that's available to you for that uh, on basic evangelism. It's in the Institute of Biblical Studies. That would be a great course to take. And then maybe to take the uh, basic discipleship class where you would know if you introduce someone to Christ, how you could help them to grow. And I don't know if you're married or not, but if you get married and you have children, what are some of the non-negotiable doctrines you want your children to understand before they leave your home? I would say what's taught in that basic discipleship course. So it's really in-depth. So take, for instance, eternal security. Um, if I ask you what are the three bases by which God says a believer can know that he is he eternally secure and assured of his salvation. And those are actually two distinct doctrines, assurance and eternal security. Some Christians say, well, I can know I'm saved today, but I can't know I might be saved a year from now because I could lose my salvation. No, the Bible teaches both assurance and the security of the believer. And so there are like three critical bases for assurance of salvation. Every Christian ought to be able to articulate those uh, to a new believer that they are discipling. And so um, this course would really be great. And then I would say maybe some of the courses in the Institute of Biblical Studies, maybe, um, uh, you know, I was dealing with someone recently and they're rather new to the faith and uh, haven't grown up in a Bible teaching church and have been exposed more to attacks from the Bible than the authority and infallibility of the scripture. And so I suggest that they take the course in bibliology in the Institute of Biblical Studies that I offered. Now, that's 500 pages long, 500 note-taking pages uh, that you fill in as you walk through the course. But it's going to teach you how we got our Bible. Why do we have 66 books and not 72 like our Roman Catholic friends, um, you know, how can we say that there are no errors in the Bible and so on and so forth? It's really going to ground you in the faith. Um, I also like to suggest for new believers uh, a, a series that was put out in the 1970s and it's still in print by the Navigators. It's called Design for Discipleship. It's just a seven booklet a Bible study that would make for some good quiet time material. So maybe that would be a starting place for, for you, Karen. I hope that's helpful to you. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Alberto from Savannah is on the line. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Go well, ahead, Alberto. Good Albert. morning, Dr. Cole Brogy and Rick Porchner. Hey, good morning, Alberto. Good to hear your voice. Are you doing okay? Yes, sir. Yeah, I got a question. The Bible talks about revelation about that God writes our name and his palm of his hand and all that, right? Well, why do Christians want to use that verse to justify to write tat- tattoos in their body? And because only that's 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 in the God that God. So that's in the spiritual realm. So we're in the physical realm. Plus, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's body, we don't own our own. So why would Christians want to use that verse to justify to tattoo their bodies, you know, to uh, to desecrate the temple of the Holy Spirit by doing tattoos and Eastern pagan practices and stuff like that? Well, it's it's a fair question. Um, you you make a, a good point, and sometimes people, you know, will take a verse of Scripture to build a case, and uh, it's not always a you know, a, a fair verse to use. The, the verse you're quoting is not found in Revelation. Of course, it's found in Isaiah forty nine sixteen, 
where God says, see, I've written your name on the palms of my hands, always in my mind. Um, and so, you know, your, your, your palms, you look at them, and God is just saying that he's close to you. He, he doesn't literally have our names written in the palms of his hands, but as you said, he's underscoring his spiritual truth. Uh, people try to build a biblical basis for tattoos. And look, I, I know there's a lot of people listening that have tattoos. They're genuine believers. Some did it before they were saved. Some did it in ignorance after they were saved. I, I baptize, you know, new believers constantly every month. And uh, all the time I see ink that maybe other people don't even see. Um, but God said in Leviticus, you shall not make any cuts in your body uh, for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. And so early Christian historians and the church fathers wrote that, you know, putting a tattoo in the body was something that a follower of Christ should not do. That was the universal understanding of this Old Testament verse, not to mention that the Orthodox Jews to this day, you don't find tattoos on them unless, of course, uh, they are, you know, leaving a more liberal sect of Judaism. And there are obviously different branches of Judaism, some that reflect an adherence to Scripture more than others. And generally, if you grew up Orthodox, no tattoos. Uh, you know, the whole idea of tattoos has really changed. Typically, when I was a child, the only people who had a tattoo was maybe someone in the military or someone in prison. You know, we used to say, well, not everyone who has a tattoo is in prison, but everyone who's in prison has a tattoo. But not so anymore. You know, doctors, lawyers, even pastors, you know, wear tattoos. Uh, though many times, sadly, they're associated with, you know, sexual immorality, uh, sensuality. I, I don't think it's by accident that uh, many times when a teenager has been immoral and they've given away their virginity to someone that they, you know, were not married to, uh, they immediately go out and get a tattoo. Uh, and that's kind of sad. But um, sadly, a lot of Christians are kind of squishy on this issue, but I don't think you have to be. Um, because I think God just said it as plainly as he could. I don't think we should, you know, wave this over people's heads, you know, as a test of fellowship or anything like that. But uh, if God says, you know, don't do it, then I I don't want to do it. Some people take a verse out of Revelation. Maybe this is what you were referring to where it talks about Christ's name written on his thigh I don't think it's literally written on his thigh thigh, but on the robe that covers his thigh. I think that's what's really in view, and I cover that in my series on Revelation. But I think, too, just to think about, you know, what's the function of your wanting to have a tattoo? Uh, Are you trying to draw attention to yourself? Um, And, of course, a good principle is, if you're not clear whether you should do something, many times people don't even pray about it. And But if they would pray about it, I think they would, if they knew Christ, would have a real sense of, I don't know if I should really do this. Well, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Uh, Romans 14 says that whatever's not from faith is sin. And so if there's some doubt in your heart, when in doubt, you know, cut it out. Don't do it. And again, what's your desire for wearing a tattoo. 
is it to call attention to yourself? Well, there's a biblical principle that, um, you know, you shouldn't call attention to yourself. People say, well, I, I wear it because it's sensual and sexy. Well, that's something that shouldn't portray a Christian woman, certainly. Uh, she is uh, to dress modestly and discreetly, and both of those are brought together. A woman can be modest but not discreet, and that she wears some outlandish um, you know, garment that is, again, designed to draw attention to herself rather than, you know, just simply, you know, honoring the Lord in what she does. And and I will say, too, that, and maybe this will be less of an issue as these become more popular, that, you know, I want to be able to relate to every category of people. I, we had a gentleman in the church. He, he's not here anymore. He's moved. But, uh, you know, he came to Christ out of a drug-alcohol background and, I mean, Satan-worshipping uh, kind of background. And he found the Lord at Community Bible Church. And man, this guy had more ink than you could imagine. It was all over his face, his neck, his arms, his leg. I mean, every square inch of his body was covered with it. And it was kind of scary looking, uh, you know, to little children. And um, and it was sad because, you know, he, he couldn't erase those. But what, was, what I rejoiced in is that he found the Lord as his Savior. But I guarantee there is a certain group of people that he'll never be able to maybe relate to initially in life. Because they will write him off. They will associate him <clears throat> with a certain lifestyle that may be unfair of him. And it's a, and it's a poor judgment that they've made on him. And so his ability to, to share the gospel in some realms will be limited. Look, if I don't have a tattoo, I can share with anyone. Uh, I don't have to get a tattoo to, you know, have solidarity with tattoo people in order to win them to Christ. So I want to be all things to all men. So I just don't think wisdom would dictate having a tattoo. And I, and I really think that the verse in Leviticus has full application for us today, just like some of the other verses in that chapter, you know, and in that whole section, like a, a man shouldn't lay with an animal or a woman shouldn't lay with another woman and so on. It has full application. So good question. I appreciate it. You might want to uh, listen to my series on the Revelation because I, I deal with this in a lot more in depth. if you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, we've got two different questions, but they're along the same line. Miriam from Hamden, Connecticut writes, God made so many planets, and yet our planet is the only one inhabitable. My question is why, and are there other type of alien worlds not known to us? I know God's way of thinking isn't the same as we think. I'm curious about the purpose of so many planets. And then Sonia from Rankin, Georgia says, uh, I wanted to ask what you think about the current revelation from the U.S. military and Pentagon that Navy pilots and ships have interacted with and seen UFOs or unidentifiable flying objects that seem to defy the law of physics or move too quickly to be explained by our current technology. Can these things really be alien? Based on my current theologic understanding, aliens don't seem possible. It seems to me that God created only humans in his image. Aliens can't be real, can they? Well, it's a great question about UFOs uh, and, you know, life on other planets. And it's not necessarily a new question. Uh, Certainly it comes up uh, in the course of the last several hundred years. Isaac Watts, who's a great hymn writer, uh, wrestled with this whole issue. But, you know, does life exist on other planets? Are we alone in the universe? Well, we're not alone in the universe. 
Uh, we know for sure, certain there are angelic beings, uh, both fallen and evil, that are at work in the heavenly realms. But it's not, again, a totally new question, and it's certainly been a question that Christians have asked a lot in the last 50 years or so. Um, And, of course, there's no one who was around when the world was created, and so then it becomes a question of how did we get here? And, of course, the evolutionist has two options. Either life arose on Earth spontaneously which is his position, and it's the position of the theistic evolutionists. So you've got guys like Tim Keller, who's a so-called Christian apologist, who's a terrible apologist. I wouldn't recommend his book for anything, even his book uh, for the reasons that we're supposed to believe. I never allowed it to be used in community Bible church because in the early chapters, he undermined the creation account by saying that theistic evolution was a viable option for the believer, and it's not. God did not use the process of evolution to create. Scripture is very clear that God created the world in six 24-hour days. That's how Jesus viewed it. That's how Moses writes about it in the Decalogue when he speaks about the fact that we are to work six days and on the seventh day we are to rest because in six days, and he looks at it as six literal days, God created the heavens and the earth. So the evolutionists won't view that God created the world because he wants to suppress the truth of God in his mind. He starts with the premise that there is no God and that man got here somehow uh, through some of their means. And this is why they're always interested, you know, we got to send a ship to Mars and bring back some dirt and maybe we'll find some, you know, water molecules in it and show that there's life on other planets. But the scripture is clear that the earth is a unique planet. Listen to this verse in Isaiah 45. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. There is none other. So God is underscoring in Isaiah that the earth is a unique planet. Now, certainly, you know, astronomers have found, I forgot, something like 4,000 other planets with orbiting stars, but none of those planets, they would agree, at least from their knowledge at this point, is Earth-like, that can inhabit life the way this planet does. And so the evolutionist, he begins with a false notion that life can evolve, um, but look, so what, where, where does this life come from? You know, lifeless matter cannot give life to itself. Only God can create life. That's a truth that it's affirmed over and over and over and again in the scripture. And so the evolutionist needs to ask, um, and, you know, even the theistic evolutionist who says he's a Christian and believes God used this process. Well, what kind of life is there on these other planets? And if uh, God made man in his image with a soul, because we are distinctly different from the rest of his creation, He breathed into Adam the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So if God made man in his image with a soul, and uh, plant and animal life is below us, then what kind of life is there? there, Are are there other humans there? And if there are other humans, are these humans sinless, or are they sinners? Um, When Adam fell and rebelled against God, does that mean that there were humans on other planets billions of galaxies away, say, that fell with him? 
Does that mean that Christ had to go and die on other planets? So, you know, he's created this scenario that, again, it starts in the false premise that God did not create. But one, Isaiah affirms very clearly that God made the earth to be inhabitable. And it also affirms in Romans 5, uh, I'm reading Romans 5 now in verse 12, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so in Adam was the whole human race. And when Adam rebelled, we all sinned in and with Adam. And so it says in Romans 5, 19, just a few verses later here, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. And so um, clearly God takes humans and he puts them over all of the creation. Psalm 8 is a beautiful psalm that, describes the role that God gave to us. The psalmist writes, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you should take thought of him and the son of man that you should care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And so the very nature of man and the role that God gives man eliminates some kind of theory that there's superior life on other planets that's further evolved because God clearly says that he put man to rule over his creation. That was Adam's job. Of course, Adam through sin lost his ability to rule as God intended him to rule. So, you know, unthinking Christian people who ascribe to theistic evolution, they're going against the clear account of Scripture, but they're also going about against the clear account of the, the reason God created the rest of the universe and all these planets. I mean, God, I suppose, could have just made the uh, earth and a sun to warm us and a moon to regulate the tides, but he didn't. He created all kinds of planets. And he put man, though, on planet Earth that Isaiah, again, affirms was designed to be inhabited. And when Adam sinned, and we in and with Adam, the Bible is clear in Romans 8 that all of creation fell. Listen to this. For the creation, this is Romans 8, I'm reading in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Uh, Paul is describing the fact that we moan and groan in this earthly body. Why? Because we are looking forward to the completeness of our salvation when someday God will take this fallen body with all its aches and pains, with its sin nature still within a regenerated nature, and he's going to give us a new resurrection body like Christ. Well, not only did man fell, fall, all of creation fell. And even creation he personifies here as groaning and moaning waiting for the same freedom and glory that God is going to give us. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So all of creation fell. 
So God created all of the universe, one, to display his glory. The heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. Paul has already argued here in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what he has made. So the whole universe shouts God's glory, but the whole universe also shouts man's sin. It shouts death. There's no life on these other planets. It all shouts death. God again made only the earth to be inhabitable. Now, I think this will become more and more of an issue, especially in light of these uh, UFOs. Uh, The government doesn't call them UFOs. What does the government call them? They have another term for it. Uh, UAPs, I think they call it. Mm. And... um, uh, but UFOs, that's the you know traditional name that we have used to describe an unidentified flying object. And the military, I think, calls it unidentified aerial phenomena. And so they are unidentified. So what are these lights that are moving incredibly fast, that seemingly have no propulsion, that um, F-18 and F-35 pilots have seen over the ocean and and they've been blown away with, and, you know, they have on tape, and then they plunge into the ocean, and, you know, incredible things. Are they, you know, some kind of life form? I think so. Well, you just said there's no life on other planets. Yes, but I said there's other kinds of life in the universe. There are angelic beings. And so I think if anything, if I had to put an identity, assuming that this is not some foreign government that has some superior um, technology that the United States has never found and they've hit it and worked on it, whether it's the Chinese or the Russians or whoever, assuming it's not that, they're probably either uh, angels, holy angels, or maybe more likely even demonic beings. Hey, look, there's coming a day when we shall all be caught up and they will not find us. And so Enoch is a picture of the rapture. Uh, He's removed from the earth and the Bible says they looked for him. They searched for him, uh, but they couldn't find him. And of course, that led into a time of terrible tribulation uh, that led into a time at the end of that terrible cataclysmic flood where Noah walked into a brand new world. And it's really a picture of coming events that churches remove, the time of the great tribulation unfolds, and then the millennial reign of the Messiah on the earth begins. But what I find interesting is that we're going to be gone one of these days. And just like um, when Elijah was missing and they came to Elisha and they said, well, let us, you know, look for him. And finally he says, okay, go look. But they couldn't find him. Even so, they won't find us. So what are they going to say? I mean, because it's going to be obvious that it's all these born-again believers who are missing. They'll probably say, well, aliens came because these were such problematic people You know, they didn't want the unity that the rest of the world wanted. They didn't want to ascribe to our morality and everything else. And, you know, the aliens took them, and now they're all gone. And, you know, so I can see maybe even the stage being set for the world to have an explanation on why millions of born-again Christians are missing. So we do know angels can fly in the universe and read Daniel chapter 10, and they can move around at incredible paces and rates, and they're, they're different than we are, and that may be indeed <coughs> some of these unidentifiable, unidentifiable phenomena that we are, we are seeing. 
Well, my friend, you must be a prophet because there was a second part to, um, let's see, it was uh, Sonia from Rinkin's question. She says, why is this all coming out now? Is this part of the stage being set for the Antichrist, something that will be used to explain where all the born-again Christians went after the rapture, i.e., aliens took them? Well, you know, I, I, I told people these questions didn't come from church members, so we're answering. I, I told them, I said, look, I'm going to preach a sermon on it, so stop asking me, but I'm still going to preach a sermon on it. But let me just remind you, when the Antichrist comes— let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, it being the day of the Lord. Some of these Christians, because they were under such intense persecution, thought maybe they had misunderstood the Apostle Paul, that the day of the Lord that starts in great darkness with great persecution had arisen, and that they had miscalculated what he had said about the rapture of the church. And Paul is saying, look, you're not in the day of the Lord. It's impossible for you to be in the day of the Lord. Even if someone stood up in church and gave some prophetic utterance, which was still happening at this time in human history, because the canon of scripture was not completed, or even if someone sent a letter, like if it was as if from me, and that's why Paul will say, look at all my letters, here's my distinguishing signature, so to speak. Let no one in any way deceive you, because it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. How do you know you're not in the day of the Lord? Because the great apostasy would have been in front of you, and the lawless one, the man of lawless, lawlessness, will be revealed the son of destruction. And he is the one whom Paul says opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, such that he says he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is what Jesus described, quoting the prophet Daniel as the abomination of desolation. And Paul says, don't you remember that while I was still with you, I, I taught you this. Go back, think about what I said. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he's taken out of the way. There's coming a day when the uh, restraining influence of the Holy Spirit, largely through the church, will be gone, and literally evil will have a holiday. Uh, it's going to be unleashed like never before. And so he says that then the lawless one will be revealed, the Antichrist here, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end at the appearance of his coming. Revelation describes that at the second coming of Christ. He slays the Antichrist and the false prophet and throws them both into the lake of fire. They're the first two occupants in the lake of fire. Today, men go to Hades. They don't go to the lake of fire. They go to Gehenna. But someday, Hades will become part of Gehenna. And uh, it says, this one, this Antichrist one, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders or, or lying miracles, you could render it with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. In other words, there's coming a man. He is called the Antichrist. We've always had Antichrist, but there is coming the Antichrist who will come with lying wonders and miracles and with all kinds of deceptions. And so, yeah, I think uh, indeed there's a good possibility that some of these um, you know, lights and objects that are moving at incredible rates of speed that are roaming through the universe or maybe not as uh, unidentifiable as we think, 
Maybe they're not unidentified aerial phenomena, but they're actually angelic beings. And uh, maybe Satan is indeed setting the stage uh, for this coming deception that the Antichrist is going to bring. And so I, I think, if anything, we're going to see and hear more and more of this this kind of stuff. You know, just two weeks ago over a destroyer out in the Middle East, they were saying they saw these, you know, lights and flying objects at tremendous rates of speed. And I think we're going to see probably more of this. And Satan will use this great deception in some of his demons in order to uh, give an explanation as to where all these Christians went. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Scott writes in Exodus one fifteen, it speaks of a birth stool in the New American Standard, but it speaks of the two stools in the King James and the birth stools in the New King James. And did the midwives lie or not? Thank you for taking my question. Well, it's interesting here in uh, Exodus, it says, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and set them, and the NASB says, upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it is a daughter, then he shall live. Well, the Hebrew text actually doesn't say the birth stool. It says the two stools, or you could render it the two stones. And so what the King James is doing is it's actually a little more literal here. The new King James doesn't say the stools. The new King James says the birth stools. The NAS says the birth stool. The Hebrew says the two stones or the two stools. So so it's basically two rocks that a woman would sit over those two rocks and she would give birth to her baby. And so one is trying to capture the picture of it. Well, that's the place where the baby is going to be born. And one's a little more literal. I actually prefer the NASB here because it it gives you kind of a a picture. But if we were to um, take a photograph, we'd see two stones that a woman would sit over when she, she gave birth to it. Um, and, of course, this was a day when, you know, national identities were made through the mail. And so Pharaoh wants to destroy the males, uh, the provider of the seed, too, to keep the multiplication process down. And uh, he's afraid that they're going to get too prolific and then come back and whammo us as Egyptians. But the Scripture says the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded him them, but let the boys live. So they refused to kill the baby boys because they fear God. And, of course, the king's command was in direct defiance to what God had said, be fruitful and multiply, and they value God's law over man's law. And so the midwives, when questions, they said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, because they're not as the Egyptian women, uh, he, they, they go on to say, well, they're, they're more vigorous. Um, you know, by the time we get there, they've already had the baby. So your question becomes, are they lying? What's actually going on here? Well, there, there are three positions that people have held in the history of the church. Some say, well, this is just a flat-out lie. Um, and they would argue that it was a justifiable lie. Um, some would say, well, it wasn't a justifiable lie. It was a lie shouldn't have done it, but nonetheless, because overall they feared God and they were protecting human life, you know, God God honored the decision that they made. 
So, look, you, you, you can't – it's somewhat of an oxymoron to say that this was a justifiable lie. There are no justifiable lies in Scripture. Um, lying is a, a violation of the Decalogue. You shall not bear false witness in the word for false is the same word for lie translated other places. When God speaks of, you know, different abominations in Proverbs 6, two of them of the seven are not telling the truth. And so God wants his people to tell the truth. It's never right to tell a lie. And of course, you always get into the issues of Corey Timboom or her sister and so on and, you know, to protect life. But um, some say they told a flat out lie in order to protect uh, life. Um, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think so. I think it's somewhat of a contradiction to say that they feared God at the same time they were telling out a flat out lie because God doesn't appreciate lying. In fact, when he describes an unbelieving world in the revelation and he gives different lists of people who are excluded from heaven on the list are those who love lying. Now a Christian can tell a lie, but there are people who love to lie and they are excluded from heaven, not because they told a lie, but because they're unbelieving and the fact that they were unbelieving rebels is seen in the fact that, uh, you know, they, they love to lie. A, a second position that some take is that they weren't telling a flat-out lie. They just weren't telling the whole truth. And so they held back facts, so to speak. They stated the truth, but they just didn't lie. Um, maybe by the time they ar- arrived, uh, because the people who said, hey, so-and-so is having a baby— and someone in the uh, the village, so to speak, with these two head midwives who represented, no doubt, a whole group of midwives said, well, just, just wait until she's about ready to give birth because we don't want to put our sisters in, you know, some kind of difficult position. And just uh, about the time, you know, the baby's two or three minutes away, go go get the midwives. And, and then by the time the midwives get there, they say, see, these women are so vigorous and, and uh and so they're, they're, they're telling the truth, or maybe they took their time in getting there, where they're being, in the words of Jesus, shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Look, one of Corey Temboom's sister didn't tell a lie. Two of their brothers were under the table, under the floor, and when the German soldiers came in, they said, we can't lie. Uh, her and one of their sisters said, we're, we're not going to lie. We're just going to tell the truth. And so when the German soldiers broke into the home, um, and they were in this hiding place underneath the floor. Uh, where, where, where are your brothers? Oh, they're right underneath the table. And they were underneath the table, under the floor, under the table. And the German soldiers tore off the tablecloth. And, of course, there was no one there. And they left in anger and thought they were being mocked. But they told the truth. And, of course, uh, you can withhold information. And at the same time, hey, look, all, all life shouldn't be protected. Uh, there is a time when sometimes we have to die for the truth. And so sometimes, look, Stephen could have lied when he gave that great sermon in Acts 7, but he decided to tell the truth in response to a question, and it cost the brother his life, and he's the first, you know, martyr in the Christian church. So um, there are cases in Scripture, like in Jeremiah, where he states the truth without telling a lie. Uh, So there's more than one way to skin a cat. A third position, which I take as what happened, is that the midwives did not tell a lie, 
that they told the truth and that the Hebrew women did indeed have quicker deliveries, either supernaturally or by a vigor that God had given them. Now, remember, they described them as more vigorous. And remember, too, that these women were involved in the same slavery. These people were being worked to the bone. Look, couch potatoes who lay around and are unhealthy and don't get much exercise, any obstetrician will tell you that they typically not always have more difficulty in the time frame of delivering a baby than someone who's very athletic and very vigorous and in great health. So they had kind of a built-in exercise program. So that's one possibility for their vigor. Another possibility is God just made them vigorous. Remember, God had put a promise uh, on the nation of Israel. I will make you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, Genesis 12. And so he reaffirms the promise. He says, I'm going to make you like the dust of the earth. And so your descendants are going to be numbered. Um, On that great occasion that Paul quotes in Romans 4 in Genesis 15, he says, I'm going to make you like the stars in the sky. So you're going to be like the dust of the earth. You're going to be like the stars of the sky. And a little bit later, he says, I'm going to make you like the sand on the seashore. So God makes a promise to Israel that he's going to multiply them as a nation. And he repeats it to Abraham's son and grandson as well. And so I take it that Pharaoh had a plan that could not be stopped. And these midwives feared God. Uh, They weren't going to tell a lie. God was good to the midwives because of it. Even the people of Egypt, when they're told to do what the Pharaoh thinks the... Look, and think about this for a second, too. If the Pharaoh thought that these two midwives were just telling a flat-out lie, you think they would have survived the day? I promise you they would not. You read the Egyptian hieroglyphics that have been translated in terms of the kinds of men that ruled, and people can argue even the name. I'm not convinced, but they build a good argument. I don't know that we'll know for sure till we get to heaven as to which pharaoh is actually involved. But when you read about the lifestyles of these pharaohs, these were ruthless men. They didn't care about human life. And these ruthless men would have, I think, in a split second, put these two Hebrew women to death. Now, uh, Pharaoh um, then, of course, appeals to the people. But even the people of Egypt, when they're commanded to throw the boys in in the Nile River, they're not willing to do this as some act of worship. So God's character in terms of his inability to lie and his watch care over the nation that he's going to bless them and multiply them is the reason why I think he made these women vigorous, whatever means he used, whether it was through a built-in work program that made them in great physical shape or whether he just sped up the birth process before the women got there. In either case, they feared God, and it seems to me contradictory to say at the same time they feared God and lied, and I don't think that's what happened. Good question. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we've got another live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Barry. Good morning, Rick. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, how can we help? Good, I have a quick question. Um, so it's kind of a, it's two questions. It's, did Jesus do his miracles in his own power or in the power of the Holy Spirit? 
And also, did he lose the Holy Spirit on Calvary? And I'll take my answer off air if that's okay. Sure, that's fine. You know, when the scripture says that Christ emptied himself uh, in the great kenosis passage, the word kenosis is referring to the emptying of Christ. Uh, The Bible affirms, uh, church history affirms, there's been one unified voice that Christ, of course, did not in any way empty himself of his deity. Uh, He never gave up any of his divine attributes when he took on our humanity. And so, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So he emptied himself and being found as appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he still obtained Uh, kept, of course, all of his divine attributes. It would really be a contradiction in terms to say that he could lose them. In fact, there are some uh, churches that will not sing that hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, uh, by uh, Charles Wesley, because there's, in one of the choruses, we, we sing one chorus, in the original there were five choruses, but he emptied himself of all but love. They would say, no, he didn't empty himself of any of his divine attributes. So let's just stick with that to start. But in taking on our humanity, he chose to subject himself to the Holy Spirit and to live in dependence upon the Spirit. And of course, in the passage that you would find in Matthew chapter 12, do you remember that occasion when a demon-possessed man came to Christ who was both Uh, possessed by a demon. He was blind and he was mute and they brought him to Jesus and um, he did a miracle so that he healed him such that the mute man was able to smoke, speak, and and he was able to see and the crowds were just blown away and they asked the question, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, is this the promised Messiah? One of three great titles given for Messiah in the Old Testament is son of man, son of David, and son of God. And so the son of David, referring to David's son, who would be the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? Because one of the things that Messiah is said to do, there are some miracles that were not unique to Christ, but there were some miracles that were unique to him, and one would be that he would make blind eyes to see. No one had ever opened the eyes of a blind man before. And of course, um, there were some Pharisees there, some religious leaders, and they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So this is one of many passages in the Bible that affirms that Jesus did the miracles the way he did in dependence upon the Spirit of God. He didn't exercise just his omniscience all by himself, but he chose to live in dependence upon the Spirit of God to pull off the things that he did. Now, your second question, by the way, I have a course on pneumatology, 
And again, it's much like the course on bibliology. It's not for the faint. It's very in-depth. And we look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament during the time of Christ as he walked on the earth. And we cover his relationship to the Holy Spirit. We look at a number of passages that deal with his dependence on the Spirit. We look at his role through the apostles, through the church age, through the coming millennial age, and so forth. Um, but your second question is interesting in terms of on Golgotha, you know, what happened? Well, he was forsaken by the Father and the Spirit. When we think of the death of Christ, we actually see all three members involved in the death of Christ. And again, we cover this when we um, look at how can we say the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal, and how can we say that while they are separate, they are indivisible, And so we look at a number of ways in which each member of the Godhead work independently yet inseparably. And so like in the creation of the world, the Father is credited with the creation. The Spirit is credited with the creation of the world. The Son is credited with the creation of the world. When you think, say, about the giving of spiritual gifts, Romans 12 says God the Father gives spiritual gifts. Ephesians 4 says God the Son gives spiritual gifts. Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says God the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts. Now, I would say if there was accent on one member of the Trinity for the giving of spiritual gifts, we'd probably say the Spirit. When you think about the death of Christ, we're told, but God demonstrates his love towards us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And there, theos is a reference to God the Father. Now, sometimes that Greek word can be used in reference to God the Spirit or God the Son. But most often in the New Testament, when you see the word God, it is used to distinguish the Father from the Son or the Spirit. And yet Jesus said, no one is going to take my life away from me. I am going to give it. And then you're reading the scripture that the Spirit of God empowered Jesus to go to the cross. So who gave the Son? Each member of the Godhead. But while Jesus became sin on our behalf, and most would uh, put this at the time frame where at midday it became like midnight. When the sun is the highest and brightest in the sky, it got pitch black. And, you know, people knew something was going on, and certainly one of the men who hung next to Christ knew something was going on because he went from blaspheming Jesus to confessing Jesus as he hung there with the Lord for those six hours. But during that time, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think it's clearly a reference to both the Father and the Spirit because, again, the members of the Godhead in one sense are inseparable, but Christ's separation was not simply a separation physically where he his life physically expires but that's part of a payment for sin but also and probably the most profound aspect of Christ's giving of himself is where he is forsaken and abandoned by God the Father and he's experiencing and God the Spirit he's experiencing that separation that we should know for all of eternity and sometimes people will say well it doesn't add up if hell is for eternity and Golgotha is for, you know, six hours and maybe the spiritual separation for just half of that time. How is that a complete payment? Because Christ is infinite, and as an infinite person, he was able to accomplish in a finite period of time what you and I as finite people will take an eternity to do in a place called hell if we don't receive Christ as our Savior. 
So, yes, he is totally separated uh, from the Spirit and from the Father, and he experiences the separation that a lost man will know for all of eternity in hell. And I suppose the deepest expression of hell beyond the actual flames and the, the, the torture that God didn't create for man, he created for the devil and his angels, but the flames are real in agony the man is saying, please send, you know, Lazarus so he can just, you know, dip his finger in water and just cool off the tip of my tongue. And Jesus never uses untruth to teach truth. He always uses truth to teach truth. Jesus wasn't lying. He's describing hell there and in many other places is a real place. God will reveal his son from heaven, and he's going to deal out eternal retribution, Second Thessalonians says, eternal retribution to those who do not know God. And so hell is this place of um, eternality. The word for eternal God, eternal life, eternal death is the same word Ionion. You can't say, well, hell is it, you know, it's just for a period of time, like Seventh-day Adventists or Jehovah's Witness say, and that's just it. In fact, we mentioned earlier how the false prophet and the Antichrist are the first two inhabitants in the lake of fire, and a thousand years later, after Satan had been bound for a thousand years and then loosed, he's cast into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the Antichrist still are alive. And those are just real people. Those are real human beings who are there. And again, if a man goes to hell, he's there trespassing because God didn't make it for him. He's there because he rejected God's payment. So when Jesus dies, he dies not only a physical death, He dies a spiritual death. He dies in one sense somewhat of an eternal death, totally forsaken by the Father and by the Son. You know, logistically, how did all that work out? I I don't know. But I can tell you what the Scripture says. And he was truly forsaken by both the Father and the Spirit. He did not have the Spirit of God to comfort him. David could say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, you're there to take care of me. Jesus had no such comfort as he made a payment for our sin that we might have life eternal. Well, we don't really have time for another question, but maybe you'd like to share about the upcoming trip to Israel. Oh, yeah, we are, God willing, planning to go in September, and uh, the conflict is over. In fact, if you'd like information, we're going to go just one week instead of two, and it will be uh, starting, I think, September the 28th into the next 10 days into October. Um Israel is one of the safest places in the world right now. In fact, I'm sending out a little video that Hanok Teller, a rabbi friend in Jerusalem, made for me. And he just was here in the States. He said, I feel safer in Israel than I do here in the United States where they're banging up and shooting up people every day. Um, he said, we don't have those problems where we, we are. Anyway, so uh, on Sunday the 13th, after the 11 o'clock service, we'll be doing an informational meeting here at Community Bible Church. You can go online at searchthescriptures.org and uh, register or uh, register your name with questions as well. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great day. 